Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The founder of FTX facing a judge. Sam Bankman-Fried pleaded not guilty to eight counts of fraud, money laundering, and other crimes. He could face life in prison if convicted on all counts. He was arrested in the Bahamas last month. He is out on a $250 million bond and is under house arrest at his parents' home until his trial. On November 6th, the token's value began to fall, losing more than 80% of its worth in the span of 72 hours. Looks like we got a situation on our hands. Regulators! Mount up. Yeah. What? Um, hmm. It was a cool, crisp day. He was watching the game. That's when he saw a commercial with folks of acclaim. Crypto returns that'll never default. So he thought what you'd think. That sounds too good to be false. Mortgaged his house, researched the rate, checked out the CEO. Nothing seemed out of place. But when he checked one morning, the value was gone. We should make fraud illegal. This is all just wrong. He did his research and he studied up, then bought invisible tokens. This guy just made up. It was a harsh consequence for an honest mistake. His IQ wouldn't be five if we regulate. You know, on the message boards for the NFTs, I'm one of the smarter people. So, you do the math. It was a lukewarm noon. He's on Capitol Hill, cause he got margin called and was facing a bill. You don't understand. I've lost all that I had. You need to pass more laws. This is terribly bad. Uh, excuse me. Thanks for letting me join. But isn't part of the issue him? There's a new dog coin? Maybe the underlying tech is one we shouldn't forestall. Inu, it's called. If he hadn't been allowed to be a hodler, he wouldn't have the impulse control of a toddler. We could end human nature with the pen stroke today. Why do I have a feeling that they're gonna regulate? You shouldn't prey on folks with financial illiteracy. By the way, have you seen the state lottery? The Powerball's one billion, you better not wait. He's gonna make good decisions when we regulate. And that was by way of introduction to our Crime Scenes edition this week, award-winning filmmaker Joe Berlinger in a conversation about his just-released documentary series, Made Off the Monster of Wall Street. And what it all has to do with the current FTX Sam Bankman-Fried scandal? Well, apparently plenty. Berlinger, the director of many serial killer documentaries, including about Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy, has lots to say about what these psychopaths have in common with Bankman and Madoff. All of that coming up. But first, from rebel cop to righteous whistleblower, Deep Dive political analyst and contributor to the show, Garland Nixon, with a look back at what I learned in 2022. I'm going somewhere with this, so please listen to me. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And I just thought to myself, what do I think of 2022? Hmm. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I just got to be square with people. You know, I don't really know how to do anything else. It's kind of a stream of consciousness, stream of consciousness. So I'm thinking to myself, what did I learn? Well, what is the big event? The big event was the Ukraine conflict, right? What did Garland Nixon learn? Now, keep in mind, there are those that might not agree, but this is where I'm coming from. Okay. I remember when uh, 2003, and I remember sitting in a cafeteria. I was a police officer at that point, right? I think I was a captain. I wasn't a major yet. I was a captain. I was sitting in the 2002, 2003. I was in the cafeteria one day talking to a couple people. And the U.S. was preparing to invade Iraq. As with all wars, I was against it. As with every war, I was saying what I've always saying. I was giving them to Malcolm X. I don't think we should do it. Why? You've been lied to. It's a lie. Well, but he has weapons. And this is, you know, my one buddy, one of my buddies, he was a law enforcement officer. He was actually a military police and they were calling him up to go to Iraq. And you know what he was doing? He was repeating the things that we were hearing. Dare I say it? On CNN, NBC News, New York Times, Washington Post, the usual culprits, he said, "Well, you know, we gotta fight him over here, so we don't have to fight him over there. Uh, fight him over there, so we don't fight him over here." I said, 
How is the Iraqi army going to get here? They don't have a navy. I guess they're going to fly commercial. You're being lied to, right? So we went on, and I don't know how many people. I even had family members. Well, you know, Garland Saddam Hussein might have weapons of mass destruction. And I was like, you know, they lie every time. And this is another one of those every times, right? Oh, no, you don't understand. This time, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we need to go through this again? Okay. And my position then, when people, well, what if he has weapons of mass destruction? I said, even if he does, we don't have the authority to invade the country. If he has weapons of mass destruction and we invade the country, maybe he'll use them. If we don't, he won't. Number one. Number two, what gives the United States the authority to go 8,000 miles across the world to point a country out it just happens to have a lot of oil in it. You might notice that. I'm just saying. A country that the leader just happened to say, I think I'm going to start selling oil in something other than dollars. Those factors might have come into play when the people who run our government decided to overthrow and attack and invade its country and kill a million people. A million. That's the estimates. A million. Okay? But I'm just saying, so another country full of oil... The leader says, hey, I think I'm going to sell oil in something else. And the United States says, we don't want the mushroom, the, the smoking gun to be a what, mushroom. The man might have weapons of mass destruction. We must act 8,000 miles. He's a threat to us. And the United States attacked Iraq and defeated the Iraqi army in two weeks. And the Iraqi army was a threat to us. You defeated the army in two weeks. That was a threat to you that didn't have an air force, didn't have a navy, had 1950s Soviet tanks, barely World War II Soviet tanks. They were no match for you. The U.S. government knew they were no match for us, and they lied. They lied about weapons of mass destruction, and you can go online, and you can, and I'm going somewhere with this, so please listen to me. You can go online, and there's a guy named, God rest his soul, Tyler Drumheiler. I'm watching 60 Minutes one night. 60 Minutes wouldn't do that anymore. They're just totally part of War Machine, but the propaganda machine. But, oh, Tyler Drumheiler. And he says, you know, I was in charge of the CIA in for all of Europe. And we were able, the CIA, we were able to turn one of Saddam Hussein's closest people. We paid him off. We had him. He's our guy, right? And we said to him, tell me about the West, weapons of mass destruction. The guy said, look, I got to be square, which I'm paraphrasing. There is none. We got rid of them a long time. There are none. So this guy, Tyler, Tyler Drum, look it up. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Look it up. He said, so I went to, I thought, great. He says, I went to Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and all of them was sitting in there. I went to the president and I said, guys, here's the deal. We turned this dude at the CIA. He came clean. Guess what? There's no weapons of mass destruction. And Tyler Drumheiler said, now this was before the war. Tyler Drumheiler then said, I expected them to say yes. He says, but all I got was an icy stare. And they said, this is not about weapons of mass destruction. This is about regime change. What they said to him in the White House that day was this. We're lying to the American people, dude. Wake up. Weapons of mass destruction is the cover story. The true story is we're overthrowing this government. We got to lie to the American people because if we tell the American people we're overthrowing this government because the man's got lots of oil and we want his oil and he might sell oil in something other than dollars and we're not going to have that. That's a murderous, treacherous crime organization thing to do. That's what we're doing. But it's a criminal thing to do. It is a blatant violation of international law. Under the Nuremberg uh, 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 rules, after World War II, that is a war of aggression. It is the worst crime against humanity known. And our government said to that CIA guy, Tyler Drumheiler, that's what we're going to do. But we can't tell the American people we got to lie to them. I saw that. You go on YouTube and you can watch it too. Tyler Drumheiler or Heller, uh, 60 Minutes. Look at it. You can find it all over the place. So what did I learn? I already knew that we were being schnooked. That's why when they said, here's another war, I said, A, they're lying to us. B, they're not giving us the real reason. And C, they're going to pay, get paid off of this war. Dick Cheney was in charge of a company called, company called Halliburton. When the war started, Halliburton was almost in bankruptcy. A year later, they, had, they were worth $1.8 What happened? 
Cheney was eating off of that war, and he ate well. And then you had all Bechtel, all of these companies. What did they do? They blow up a dam. We'd send somebody in to rebuild it, right? You know the game plan. It was a scam. It was a scam, scam, scam. It was a criminal operation to illegally overthrow a government and to lie to the American people and then to go in there. Look this up. Look this up if you don't believe me. $8 billion in cash disappeared. $8 billion. Do you know how many tractor trailer loads of money that is? The United, first of all, what are you sending $8 billion in cash anywhere, much less into a war zone? Look it up. You, I, could, I, I could, right now, I'm in front, I could, I could uh, uh, search right now on, and, and find it as quick as I could blink, but I'm not going to bother. You go ahead and do that if you don't believe me. The U.S. sends $8 billion in pallets and then says it disappeared. Literally, we don't know where it had. They said, oh, we thought we did. I don't know. You know, what are you going to do with 10 or 12 tractor trailer loads of money? How easy is that to lose? It was a scam. That $8 billion didn't get lost. It got scammed away into the pockets of criminals. Why do I say all of that? Because what I learned in 2022 was this. Oh, my name. Let me add this. Afghanistan. United States goes to Afghanistan. 20 years in Afghanistan. We're going to win. I don't even know what win was. Oh, they won all right. They won. They won $2.3 trillion. That's how much they spent in Afghanistan doing the same thing. We'll blow up a dam. We'll build a dam. We'll blow up a school. We'll build a school. We'll blow something up. We'll build something up. They were getting paid and left $100 billion in military equipment there. Left. Hey, we're leaving. What are we going to do with this $100 billion worth of military equipment? Ah, who's got time to pack that stuff up? How much is it worth? $100 billion. Ah, we get rid of that $100 billion, we buy another $100 billion. It was an ATM. It was an automatic teller machine, just like a rock. They go in, they bomb, they start a war, they kill people, they do everything in the world, and they walk away. And what did they tell us for 20 years? We were like, Hey, can you leave Afghanistan? Are you kidding me? No. We can't leave Afghanistan. Why? Because the terrorists will come home. They'll start. It'll be an incubator for terrorism. That's the word they use. If we leave Afghanistan, it'll be an incubator for terrorism. You see, if we leave Afghanistan, the terrorists will regroup and they'll do terrorist things and they'll terrorize us. We can't possibly leave. What are you, a madman? You are insane if you think we're leaving Afghanistan. No, they will flatten America. We leave Afghanistan. They will plot on us. They will come right over here and kill every one of us. We're done. We can't leave. And then one day, a year or so ago in August, they're like, all right, we're out. And we're like, 20 years. $2.3 trillion. We can't leave because it'll be an incubator for terrorism. And you're leaving $100 billion worth of military equipment behind. What's up with that? And they're like, ah, that's so, we're not even Afghanistan. Come on. Who's talking about that anymore? We're on to Ukraine. Yay. Right? And I'm thinking, I understand Americans got duped. Maybe you're young. Maybe you didn't remember remember the first Gulf War. So I understand, okay, you got duped in the second Gulf War. I don't only get me started on the first Gulf War. Okay. Afghanistan comes along. All right, maybe you got schnookered on that. Okay, 20 years you got had 2.3 the usual, right? And I'm thinking, but Americans, oh, now they know what time it is. They will not be had again. Americans will not be had again because they're hip now. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, how many times can you steal a person's wallet and sell them back their own wallet before they're going to wake up and say, no, that don't work. Right. So realistically, I'm thinking to myself, they're not going to get people again. Ha 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 ha. Boy, was I wrong. You know what I learned in 2022 that I am an idiot, that I have the intellect of an amoeba because I thought that after people got schnookered over and over again, when Ukraine came up and the same old people said, good news, new war. And I was like, uh, guys, you know, you're about to get had again. Garland, what's wrong with you? You're a Russian Putin loving puppet you. And I'm like, uh, you know, this ain't got nothing to do with Putin and nobody else. They're fitting to get paid again. Oh, Garland. 
You see, it's about democracy versus authoritarianism. It's about standing up for justice. Don't you understand? Where's your blue and yellow flag? You poor sucker. You're being had by the liars and propagandists of Putin. You don't understand that this is about a mo-. And I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, not again. I realize that I'm an idiot. That I actually thought after they stole your wallet twice and sold you back your own wallet that you wouldn't buy your wallet a third time. And there's a whole lot of people out here, some of, I might add, legit, literally, some of the same people, actual, the same individuals in 2002 and 2003 that I said, do not buy into this. Let me add this. 2011, Obama administration, and they're talking about overthrowing the government in Libya. I used to be on a show with a guy named Mark Levine. Mark Levine is in Virginia, politician now. I was in a basement over on L Street with Mark Levine. And they were saying, we've got to attack uh, Libya and overthrow the government. And Mark was like, I think we've got to do it to save their lives. And I said, I, I, I did. no, 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 mm-mm, I don't agree. Why? And I said, because they lied to us every time. Every regime change operation we do is wrong. No, we have no business. So, Mark, I say it loud because Mark might hear me. Somebody will go back to Mark and say, Mark, Garland said that. Mark, well, I'll guarantee Mark remembers it. We argued. And I said, no, no, like I do with every war. This is easy. If there's a war and the United States wants to get into it, I say you're about to get snookered again because they always lie. It's easy to be consistent, right? And Mark, no, well, we've got to stand up for the people of Libya. How's that working out right now? Libya was the richest country in Africa. The United States overthrew it, screwed them over. There's literal, it's a disaster right now. It is a disaster, broken state, literal slavery. I'm telling you. And now comes Ukraine, and I'm going through the same thing. You know what? Three or four years from now, it's going to be the same thing because it always is. Three or four years from now, you know what I'm going to hear? You know, Garland? Perhaps in hindsight, we were schnookered. Let me, let me, so, 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 I say to you, I know there's people, and the, the, you know the saddest thing for me, though? When I look at, as a black person, when I look at the history of America, when I look at how America has treated black folks in America, and around the world. When I look at how America has treated people of color, you know, look at, you know, genocide here in America, right? And then people think, oh yes, they really messed over the American Indians, Native Americans, right? They got to Mexico and put their left blinker on. Do you have any idea what the United States record is in South America and Latin America? Overthrown countries, left and right, murder them, uh, genocides. I could name the El Mozote massacre, on and on and on. Pe- uh, 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 um, um, you know, impoverished peasants, slaughtering them because we want oil or bananas or cacao or something like that, right? And when I see black folks on board the war machine, yes, sirree, well, our country is going to do this. And I'm like, our country, <laughs> our country, brother, eh, I, you may consider it our country, but the laws in the United States don't seem to consider it you part of our country. I always say this. If black Americans were citizens, they wouldn't need the civil rights bills. They wouldn't need the voting rights bills. They wouldn't need any of that because all of those things are in the Constitution. For every American citizen, all your rights are in the Constitution. But black folks get a little something special. We got to have an addendum to the Constitution that says, oh, yeah, and them too. Americans can all vote, and we got an addendum. Yeah, and black folks too. Hey, Americans can buy a hamburger anywhere they want. Nobody can tell them no. Oh, yeah, let's write something down to say black folks, too. That is an indicator, my friends, that that first part of the Constitution don't apply to black folks, because if it did, they wouldn't need the second part. So when black folks say, our, we are going to this country, the evil guy in this country, I'm just like, yeah, well, brothers and sisters, I love you. And great, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm glad you feel like you're part of this thing, man. You're part of doing something, overthrowing governments and murdering people around the world. It's not something to be proud of, but okay, at least you're involved in something in you mentally. But in reality, when you look at the history of the U.S. with people of color, it ain't good. And I'm not talking about every American. I'm talking about the policies of the U.S. government. The policy, when the U.S. government is what? The ruling elite. 
Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on Arts Express. Okay, John, go ahead. What I tell you is what I know is fair. I'm a power person. I enjoy power. Nobody else had to get to pull off what I pulled off. <laughs> I outsmarted you again. Police today found six more bodies under the home of suspected killer John Gacy. Well, you can be walking down the street, and if Gacy lay eyes on you, you have now become his next victim. And they would say, you're a cop, huh? I'll do anything you want. Just don't bust me. That's scary. Everybody from the neighborhood knew John Gacy. I was clowning him and appearing in at least 10, 15 parades. He was also a Democratic precinct captain. He seemed very personable, very friendly, but he could turn on a dime. There is a right way, there's a wrong way, and there's my way. Young, clean-cut, barrel-looking. We find out that, yeah, there's a kid. He worked for Gacy. I haven't seen him in a while. I know this guy. He worked there. He's missing, too. A lot of officers were telling parents, they're runaways, your, your kid will be back any day now. A lot of conversations with end with, good luck with that. I just feel that I'm being cheated again in my life. With his sexual urges, that came out as rage. I heard a click behind me. It was a revolver and he had it pointed at my head. Nobody wants to accept what the hell I say. He was playing a cat-and-mouse game with the police department. You can't let J.C. go. If he tries to leave, you got to shoot his tires out. Whatever was there, we had to find it. I'm accused of it so much that I should go out and do it. I don't even know if I killed him. I have no remorse. Clowns can get away with anything. Clowns can get away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> And those were scenes from Conversations with a Killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes, and what that documentary series about the notorious clown killer, in fact, of a number of serial killer productions by multiple award-winning director Joe Berlinger, has to do with his current just-released production, Made Off the Monster of Wall Street, as well as the current FTX Sam Bankman-Fried scandals, will become apparent in a moment in this conversation with Berlinger, whose enormous body of work includes social justice productions as well, Crude, The Real Price of Oil, about the lawsuit of tens of thousands of Ecuadorians against Chevron over the contamination of the Ecuadorian Amazon, and The System, his groundbreaking investigative expose about the state of the U.S. court system best described as liberty and justice for all who can afford it, and what might be said to characterize all of Berlinger's work about the system. First, some scenes from Madoff, the monster of Wall Street, then Joe Berlinger. People think they know this story. Bernie Madoff has been arrested. They think it's a story about one man. There is no way you can run a $50 billion Ponzi scheme and not have anybody else know about it. Madoff was the scapegoat for the financial crisis. But in a blue-collar crime, the bodies drop before you investigate. In a white-collar crime, they drop afterwards. And the choice he made was he could live with himself as a liar much more easily than he could live with himself as a failure. He had his handful of soldiers create fake trading documents to give to the SEC. Look at the numbers. It's impossible that he's trading in the volume that he says he is. If you're getting good returns, people knew not to ask too many questions. We need a smoking gun. The big banks, the regulatory agencies completely failed. If you are the watchdog, you have totally and thoroughly failed in your mission. Bernie is managing money for some of the world's most dangerous people. He told me that if I am wrong, I have no out. I am a dead man. People lost everything. One thing every one of them was, which everybody in the industry is, they're greedy. Trust, betrayal, pure evil. A hundred years from now, people will remember this story. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What intrigued you about Madoff and that scandal that led you to go for this project? 
Well, you know, over the years, I think Bernie has been mythologized as this evil genius who single-handedly duped Wall Street. And I believe that that's a bit of a false narrative because I think he was enabled by Wall Street, enabled and abetted by, by some people on Wall Street and some institutions. Uh, and I think it, it, it's important to tell this cautionary tale. Little did I know that as the show was coming out, it would coincide with, because I started the show a year ago, we would see yet another fraud yeah. uh, that has very similar kind of seeds and ingredients that uh, the Madoff fraud had, namely, you know, the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, FTX is not a Ponzi scheme, but you see the same forces at play. You see this you see a charismatic guy who is selling a bill of goods that people are all too willing to listen to because of greed. You know, there are the warning signs of, of Bernie's fraud were, were very loud and clear. And whistleblowers were reporting him to the SEC and the SEC ignored it. Uh, anybody with any kind of financial literacy should have known that there was something wrong here. There were so many red flags. And yet, because Bernie was offering these institutions and these hedge funds that invested in him, uh, he was offering them double the normal fees. They were making a ton of money and looked the other way and didn't ask the right questions. And, and the questions weren't that difficult. It wasn't like he was splitting the atom. He was doing something pretty basic, and it, it should have caught the eye of a lot of people in the business. And it did. I mean, for example, Goldman Sachs trade with Bernie. So why did the other institutions participate in this? That's that's one of the many questions the series asks and one of the seeds of fraud that we see time and time again. Just Wall Street looks the other way when the money is good. Yeah. Now it's highly unusual for such wealthy individuals like Madoff to be charged with economic crimes, let alone be convicted in this country. What are your thoughts about that? and about that liberty and justice for all who can afford it. Well, interestingly, I think, you know, it's good that he was so heavily punished, but in many ways he became the face for the entire financial meltdown of 2008. Even though his Ponzi scheme was a grain of sand compared to the mortgage meltdown that affected the global economy, for the most part, Wall Street was bailed out at the expense of Main Street in the global financial crisis. Nobody went to jail for, for selling the subprime junk uh, and then cutting them up and dividing them into these securities that were sold as AAA rated uh, mortgage securities when, in fact, it was just a bunch of junk repackaged. And it caused this meltdown. In fact, many executives still see bonuses. And then all of a sudden, Bernie shows up, and he becomes the face of all of this evil that happened on Wall Street. And people projected a lot of their hate, deservedly so, on Bernie, but it allowed all these other people to get off scot-free, in my opinion. There was no accountability for the financial crisis. And one guy who had a Ponzi scheme was sentenced to 150 years, and that made everyone feel good, but it kind of missed the point of the larger accountability of the financial crisis and larger accountability of how Bernie was allowed to operate. And in your investigations and findings about Madoff for your production, has it given you any insights into that current FTX and Sam Bankman mystery? And how would you compare and contrast in any way Madoff and Bankman in comparing those two personalities and their scandals? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, have done a lot of shows on serial killers in the last mm. couple of years. I've done Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy and, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and I, I find that people like Sam Bankman-Fried and Bernie, you know, have the same characteristics of a serial killer because of their sociopathic behavior. First of all, they lack empathy. I mean, you can't take people's money and do what you want with it and, and, in fact, cause people's extreme financial harm and have any empathy towards another human being. Um, and as we see in our show, um, which is unlike Sam Bankman Street, I, I will admit, but we see in our show that Bernie, you know, blames his victims. Mm. 
blames his victims for their greed as the reason that the Ponzi scheme uh, uh, lasted so long and, and was executed in the first place, which is ludicrous to blame, vic- to blame victims. But that's exactly what Bundy and Gacy did. They blamed their victims for putting themselves in a position to be killed. Um, so this lack of empathy, this blaming of victims, and leaving this wake of destruction behind them, you know, is very similar to, to, to these serial killers. And, and Sam Bankman-Fried and Bernie shared a certain, you know, they deluded themselves into thinking they were doing good in the world. And, and there was some good being done, but it was a cover for their evil intentions. Mm. Uh, so there are, some, there are some similarities there. But the biggest similarity, which is one of the basic seeds of all frauds, that happen on Wall Street and, and something seems to happen every five to eight years is the complete dysfunction of the regulatory system. You know, Madoff, in the Madoff case, uh, whistleblowers, went, one in particular, Harry Markopoulos, went to the SEC five times in eight years with voluminous documentation suggesting they look into the case and they completely ignored him. Uh, you know, they, they, they first... W- he first went to them when the fraud was seven or eight billion dollars, and if they had listened to him then and looked into the fraud, it would have prevented sixty-four billion dollars from evaporating. Same thing with with FTX. It's like, yes, they're moving quickly now, and they've extradited him, and they're going to have a trial. But where were they before it happened? You know, the SEC is very good at mopping up the mess, but we want a regulatory culture that prevents fraud, not cleans up the mess after it happens. And what is it about you and these many notorious crime scandals that has led you to make that a major cinematic pursuit for you? <laughs> I wonder myself sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, true, true crime, I mean, just from a purely practical aesthetic standpoint, um, you know, true crime has perfect dramatic structure. You know, that's why it's always been a staple of storytelling. You have some terrible incident happens, the search for, for, for justice, and then a resolution. Uh, so crime, crime just is a good, has good narrative structure. Uh, and so I seem to be, uh, a, a, you know, attracted to this genre because it's just, a, you know, it's a, it's a fun and interesting way to tell stories. Okay, thank you so much, Joe Berlinger, for joining us on the show. Great, appreciate it. And Made Up the Monster of Wall Street is out in release on Netflix. And here with information about an upcoming film festival is DCTV's Lisa Collins. Prairie, to the host with the most, my longtime film world colleague and our fearless founder of the Women Film Critics Circle, thank you so much. And to your devoted Arts Express audience, a healthy, bright, and bountiful 2023. On behalf of this year's very exciting New York Jewish Film Festival and its dedicated team, I'm Lisa Collins, a member of our super proud selection committee. It's a joy to be welcomed to your very special Arts Express program. In their ongoing, vital, vibrant partnership, the Jewish Museum and Film at Lincoln Center are reteaming to bring you the 32nd annual New York Jewish Film Festival. This winter's Hot Tickets takes place January 12th through 23rd, presenting films from around the world that explore the multifaceted Jewish experience, especially as our choices reflect a commitment to diverse voices. As we all walk into a spiffy, shiny new year, I'd just like to spotlight one key bright aspect of this year's New York Jewish Film Festival presented by the Jewish Museum and Film at Lincoln Center. Of the festival's absolutely awesome 29 films, spanning 16 countries around the world, 14 are directed by women, with many in our compelling lineup revolving around complex female characters as well as their dynamic narratives and real-life accounts. Some of this year's exciting feature films and documentaries include Alegria, Charlotte Solomon, Life and the Maiden, Au Couture, Jews of the Wild West, The Art of Unwar, This is National Wake, Where Life Begins, and Yamna's Blessing, among an array of unforgettable movies comprising 21 world, U.S., 
or New York premieres. This year's rollout serves up some sassy shorts. Inclusive and compelling themes in our lineup grapple with a range of relevant, timely topics that include gender, ethnicity, history, religion, race, and anti-Semitism, as well as exploring class, aging, art, politics, memory, and identity. All, all these themes are boldly interwoven within our festival's robust offerings. In addition to showcasing the latest works by Dynamic Voices in International Cinema, 2023's edition features the world premiere of a new 4K restoration of the groundbreaking 1997 documentary, A Life Apart, Hasidim in America by Oren Rudofsky and Menachem Daum. Somewhat of a vintage primer that still somehow speaks to today within its own great context. And speaking of speaking, the film features narration by New York icon Leonard Nimoy and soon-to-be New York icon at that time, Sarah Jessica Parker. Once again, the New York Jewish Film Festival runs from January 12th through 23rd. There are even two virtual offerings for those who tune in from home. For more info, screening schedule, and tickets, visit nyjff.org. That's nyjff.org. I'm Lisa Collins. And now on Arts Express. Angola was a plantation. Just because you see prison with your physical eyes, what do you see beyond that? Start questioning why do we send people to prison and who's actually here? My best friend, she said, you got a story to tell, write that down. And I just put the rage on the page because I've had to do something. Man, we need help. I've been to 35 prisons across the country, but this I knew was historical. To be on a prison plantation, not just to perform, but to activate. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. What does it take for a writer, actress to perform a play she's written about prisons at a prison? and especially at one of the most notorious prisons in the country, Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, America's largest prison plantation. A new documentary about that performance, titled Angola, Do You Hear Us?, has been shortlisted for the Oscar for Documentary Short Subject. I'm happy to have as our guest today the director of the film, Cinque Northern, and the playwright-performer, Lisa Jesse Peterson, Cinque, how did this film come about? The real start of this was when Lisa Jesse Peterson met a man named Norris Henderson at a function called Art for Justice, which basically was about connecting artists and activists. Uh, Norris was formerly incarcerated. He'd been at Angola for 27 years. He'd been released for 18 and was very active in uh, bringing people to Angola and working with that population. And that led to Lisa actually getting an opportunity to perform her play at Angola. This gave me an opportunity to go in and shoot what I thought was going to be a performance, but ended up being a lot more. Lisa, you had written this play called The Peculiar Patriot, and you were no stranger to performing this show in prisons, were you? No, I wrote the play around 2003, and I literally performed the play in about approximately 35 prisons and jails across the country in a self-funded prison tour. So I leaned into the love, and the love ironically happened to be in prison. And what's the history of Angola prison? Well, Angola, you know, it's it's the largest prison in the country, largest landmass prison in the country. It's 18,000 acres. And at the time that we were shooting there, it had a population of five to 6,000 with about 85% of that population being African-American. A lot of people don't know the nickname Angola comes from the fact that it used to be an actual plantation and most of the enslaved Africans were brought from Angola. And so it actually transformed from a plantation. And when it became a prison, they actually kept the nickname Angola. Can you tell us what were your first impressions of Angola? One of the biggest things that has an impact on you is you reach the front gate and it's another 10 minutes before you're actually there. It's just, it's literally, it's a literal plantation. It's farmland. 
And Lisa, you had been to other prisons. How did this compare to, to the other prisons you'd been in? Uh, Angola was very different than any of the other prisons that I visited. You know, I, I can't escape the history that's connected to Angola and mm-hmm. the energy that you feel because it is literally or was literally a plantation. So when I walk on to the prison grounds, I know I, I look out into the, the fields literally and I can envision the cotton and all the enslaved Africans who were just brutally worked. In your play that you performed at Angola, you say of the incarcerated men and women, you aren't sitting here for punishment, you're sitting here for profit. Could you talk more about that? Yes. When I first was introduced to the prison industrial complex, which was in 1998, it was when I was asked to teach a poetry writing workshop at Rikers Island. And I was working with incarcerated adolescents ages 16, 17, 18 years old. And it was literally a a correctional officer who said to me, you don't know where you are. You're you're on a modern day plantation. And he pointed to the boys. He said, they're the new crops. They're the new cotton. And that's when I discovered that prison is a capitalist institution that makes money off of the incarcerated people. Can you talk more about that? I mean, these are just a few examples. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the companies that build the prisons, you know, those are multi-million dollar contracts. You know, you have companies that are supplying the commissaries from the toothpaste to the snacks to the ramen noodles, you know, those are huge contracts. Specifically at Angola, the men work in the fields for sometimes two cents a day, picking all kinds of produce that is generated for consumption. So you get to Angola and you set up your performance. And what happened as the performance progressed? Um, Sinkway, you want to chime in some? So, and a key thing to understand is, you know, months before we arrived there, it had been arranged that this performance would be shot. Us shooting it, there was also an Angola film crew that was live streaming it to the rest of the, I'd say about 800 men fit in that chapel, but thousands more were watching it live stream. The key thing is they shut our cameras down about 15 minutes before, and we still don't know what that reason was. This entire film is really about the energy, the electricity um, that was in that room when Lisa hit that stage. I think angered by not being able to document this, it really fueled her performance and, and it just became about a connection between her and the men, you know? And so it really, they're, they're, this was their reality. Now, I, I understand that in the middle of the performance, something happened? Lisa has a character that really goes into the prison industrial complex and, and in a very specific way is indicting of prison for profit. And the uh-huh. men were responding to that in a huge way. And this is what created a lot of tension in the room. So Norris was sent out by the administration to shut the play down because they said there was, there was an emergency in another part of the prison. Um, which we've never been able to confirm with with incarcerated men. But they said there was an emergency and they had to shut the play down midway. And they began to usher the men out. Men were lining up to try to shake Lisa's hand, to shake our hands in the crew, anyone that had to do with what they just saw. They were literally defying their orders to get out of there just to thank the team and Lisa for, for being there. It was really something I, I just had never seen anything like that. So Lisa came out, and Lisa, you could probably tell your, you know, your side mm-hmm. of this. But she yeah. came out once it was shut down. Lisa walked out, and instead of doing her normal curtain call, she threw her fist in the air, and everyone in that chapel threw their fist in the air. And we've learned that in the live stream, people in the day rooms and the TV rooms were throwing their fist up in the air. Mm-hmm. Like what was happening in that room was happening all over the prison. And that was all they could talk about, you know, after we left. 
that, How did you feel, Lisa, when you heard that it was being shut down? I yeah. go backstage to get ready for my next scene. Norris is standing backstage with a correctional officer standing behind him. And Norris tells me that I, there's been an emergency. And I knew instinctively that that was some BS, you know, that that was not true. Yeah. And I said, oh, I said, they didn't like what I was saying. And Norris just said, there's been an emergency. And so I knew what that subtext was. He couldn't say because there was a correctional officer standing right behind him. And so the men are expecting me to come back out. So they're ready to see me. So when Norris yeah. comes back out, he grabs a microphone and you could hear the men beginning to grumble. Like they knew that the blow was about to be delivered. And so when Norris said that there's been an emergency, you know, they they were very upset and they were booing and, and they all love Norris. So they knew that it was not Norris, but he was just the messenger. Okay. And so I'm backstage and I hear all this cacophony. I hear this loud just rising in the chapel. And, and when I came out, I saw all those men and it was so instinctive. It wasn't a conscious thought. It was just, you know, pure spirit. And I just threw my fist in the air. And when the men threw their fist in the air, they just started pumping their fists and chanting my name. And it was an electrifying eruption. I had never experienced anything, anything, anything like that in my life. I have to ask you, what? why do you think the prison officials agreed to let you do the play in the first place? Had they vetted it beforehand? They never asked for the play. They went to my website and they saw what I did, but they didn't do their due diligence. You know, I'm sure if they Norris read the is play, always, they probably would have not let me do it. Yeah, Norris <laughs> has always said that, you know, they, they knew what it was, but maybe they didn't watch the whole thing. That we, we really don't know. There's there's some things that I can only imagine made the powers that be uncomfortable because they saw the men responding so mm-hmm. so passionately. Once somebody is awake, it's hard to keep them asleep. And you know, one thing that impact and that emotion and and what happened that day is is still rippling because it politicized the men, and there have been some massive effects. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. What were the lasting impressions? Actually, really recently, when we went back to Louisiana to screen this for formerly incarcerated men, men who had been in Angola when this happened, oh, wow. but had now been released. And what we learned, I mean, it really blew us away. So Norris Henderson has an organization called Vote that works with these incarcerated populations. It works with these men when they come out. And he, because they were politicized and so energized by Lisa's play, that was able to be turned into voting action. And they organized their families outside of the prison. And through Norris's organization, Vote, they were able to elect judges, uh, a more progressive prosecutor. And as a result of this activity, where normally about one to three men every two years would actually get released because a lot of them weren't really engaged in their in having their cases reviewed. Since the day Lisa, so it's been two years since that day that Lisa left, 300 men have come home from Angola. And this is what they told us because I wanted to get this really clear. I said, are you relating it to that event? And what they said is the guys got so excited that they started engaging with Norris's organization and actually having their cases reviewed. And a lot of them came home as a result of it. You really had a material impact on what's happening in Louisiana. So that's great to hear. Is there anything you had to cut out of the film that you wished you could have kept in? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, definitely. Ah, Zinkway. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so the recorded audio of the men which were all from phone calls, which were firsthand accounts of men who were either in the day rooms watching or men who were literally in the room. There was about 10 hours of it. Oh, wow. (laughs) And their stories, you know, I had each of them really tell the story of that day. But in talking to them, we were really just in conversation with them and they told their own stories in the process. And so much of that material was just really compelling and surprising and heartbreaking and, and hopeful and 
there was a lot of material there that, you know, I knew when I was hearing it wasn't going to fit into this film. What can we, the general public, do to help the incarcerated men in Angola and, and prisons all around the country? Yeah, there's a campaign called Hashtag End the Exception, which is the, ex- um, you know, slavery is illegal except for punishment of a crime. And that is actually in the Constitution under the 13th Amendment. So there's um, a campaign called End the Exception to get rid of that from the Constitution so that slavery cannot be legal, even if you're incarcerated. Um, So that's something that people can do. I mean, there's so much. It's not just one silver bullet, you know, that people can do. But the more you learn about something, then you can say, oh, I want to help in this capacity. I want to, you know, get involved with people who are coming home to help with employment or help with, um, you know, reentry services. There's so many ways to enter into. It depends on where, you know, your spirit lies and, and what, what activates you, what interests you. Well, as we wrap up, anything else that you'd like to add, either one of you? Um, I do say this in the film, and it's it's such a, um, you know, a key point for me in terms of imagining something different. I look to our ancestor, um, my patron saint, Harriet Tubman, and she was able to envision freedom when the only thing around her was slave life, plantation life. And she was able to envision something. So what? So we have that same responsibility to envision something different. Well, thanks so much, Sinque and Lisa. I've been talking to director Sinque Northern and writer-performer Lisa Jesse Peterson about their powerful short documentary called Angola, Do You Hear Us? This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.